a fantastic message that Christ overcame and that we too can overcome. We gather on a Sunday morning to worship. We worship in giving. We worship in song. We worship in the word. Uh, I want to thank the worship team this morning for leading us in the worship and song. And uh, last one off the stage gets introduced. <laughs> hey, we want to welcome Seth, who uh, joined us on the drums today. Seth is Cindy's son. He did a fantastic job. We're glad you were able to join us. <laughs> I want you to know that your uh, stepdad put me up to that. <laughs> Jesus is... Fill in the blank. A story in Hebrews. That's what the front of your bulletin says. Now thus far in 2014, at First Church, we have looked uh, at the lens through which we view church. Kind of how our leadership views how we do church. We then spent a good amount of time looking deeply at the story of the prodigal son, or the story of the prodigal God, if you want to call it that. In between then and now, we enjoyed a, a liturgical, reflective service, and uh, a different Sunday, we, we celebrated Freedom Sunday with thousands of churches worldwide, uh, bringing awareness to human trafficking and God's heart and His desire to set people free. Uh, we also got to hear a couple times from our resident missionary, uh, David Midkiff, who, uh, by the way, if you haven't heard, he and his wife are 100% funded again. So they... they uh, they were 100% funded, they got pregnant, which happens when you get married uh, at times, uh, then they had to raise some more and wondered, oh, is this going to happen again? And hey, just like that, God, God's amazing. I'm thrilled that he did that. Anyways, we got to hear from David uh, twice um, as I got to go and watch my sons compete in, uh, in gymnastics, which uh, I appreciate greatly. Uh, the last three weeks, or three out of the last five weeks, we looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And today, as your bulletin cover suggests, we begin a study in the book of Hebrews. But why Hebrews? You know, if you do any sort of research at all, you'll find that the book of Hebrews was not widely accepted as Scripture, was not widely accepted as canon until the middle of the 4th century. And even after that, the great Martin Luther still said, yeah, I'm not quite sure if it belongs in the Bible. So why study Hebrews? You know, if you've ever taken time to really dive into it, to try and understand this New Testament letter, more than likely you've come away a bit baffled, a bit like, oh, wow. And that's because, as, as one respected commentator puts it, Hebrews is the most difficult book in the whole New Testament. He says there was never any time in the history of Scripture that this book was meant to be an easy read. The same scholar says this is a book written by a scholar for scholars. Ooh, sounds like fun, yeah? Of all the great minds, the great historians, the great theologians, none of them could pinpoint who wrote this book. There's a lot of different ideas as to who wrote it, but none could pinpoint who and none could really pinpoint when. They take several clues from the book, and, and some make some good educated guesses. But bottom line, as one of our original fathers of our faith, Origen, said, he says, only God knows, which is true. So why study Hebrews? Why study this book? And I say it's because a couple of months back, I was deeply impacted personally by the first verse in the third chapter. 
And that says this in the English Standard. It says, therefore, holy brothers, and I would add, and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, in a New Living Translation that I'll be preaching from, it says, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. Consider Jesus. Think carefully about Jesus. Other translations say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. Take notice of this Jesus. Why study Hebrews? Bottom line, it keeps us focused on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. If as a church our mission, our goal is to be disciples, make disciples of Jesus, then we ought to keep our focus on him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to try that again. If our goal as a church, if our mission is to be disciples, make disciples of Christ, then we ought to keep our focus on him. Amen? There we go. That's a little bit better. Let's pray. We'll ask God's divine hand not only on today but on this entire uh, series. Lord God, we recognize that uh, as we open Scripture, we only truly understand it when, uh, when it's, it's brought to uh, clarity by you. We recognize, Lord, as we tackle this book, uh, a book that is known for being difficult, we ask that you would bring clarity. We ask that you would bring the ununderstandable into an understandability. We ask, Lord, that you would do that uh, gradually, uh, all at once, or however else you'd like to do it. I ask that my words this morning would be words from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever wondered what, what skills, what traits, what's exper- what experiences do they have that pushes them to the top of the interview process and, and gets them that, that job? If you haven't, I have. I've wondered that. And one of my best friends is a headhunter for high-end corporate CEO positions. So this past week I called him and said, hey, hey, Jeff, can you send me a resume of somebody who would land that job? You know, that high stress, high responsibility, uh, high everything type of job. So he sent, he sent me a resume. And uh, I want to read just kind of excerpts of it. I won't read the entire thing. What I will tell you is this. He sent it to me, and he he said, James, and I quote, he says, this person could run a billion-dollar company with their eyes closed. Wow. So here are some excerpts from that resume. We'll start with this person's education. It happens to be a guy. Uh, He's got a bachelor's of science in aerospace engineering from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Happened to be elected captain of the varsity football team in 1980. Um, that's tired, right? <laughs> Done. Three-time academic All-American. He went to Harvard University after that, uh, the Graduate School of Business Administration, got his MBA. His first job out of Harvard, he uh, was the manufacturing manager at an engine controls division, and he directed operations for a $23 million, 200-employee division. That's his first job. Not bad. Second job, business unit manager. $40 million business unit, 150 employees. Job at Technicolor Video Services. He was a vice president and plant manager. And uh, one after that, an operations manager. Um, in 1997, took a job as the aerospace business unit manager. Was a team leader with a profit loss responsibility for $100 million. Um, 
2004, was the vice president and general manager, uh, full profit loss responsibility for a highly profitable $220 million OEM, whatever that means, an aftermarket supplier of systems services provided bonded assemblies, active systems, controllable fluid devices to manage shock, vibration, noise, and motion. Did you catch that? I didn't, but he just keeps getting cooler and cooler. Uh, next thing on his list, he was the president of a, of a company where he led a highly profitable $215 million global supplier for the aerospace and defense industries. Man, what next, right? This is an actual resume that came across the desk of my friend, the headhunter. Now, why do I start with that? Why do I start with that as we're beginning a study on Hebrews? Well, let's open up, if you haven't, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and let's see if we can't make some sort of connection. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says this, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to his Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. See, a high-level resume which lands somebody in the role of a corporate CEO company is essentially what we're looking at in these first three verses of Hebrews. Here we see Jesus' job title, if you may, and what qualifies him for that role. His title and what qualifies him. Listen again with that in mind. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. When He had cleansed us from our sins, He sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. So if we say title, well, title, Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is God's son. And we could look just a couple verses later for further proof of that. Verse 5, for God never said any, to any angel what he said to Jesus. You are my son. Today I've become your father. And God also said I will be his father and he will be my son. Okay, that's his title. And if we're going to be spending time considering Jesus, thinking deeply about this Jesus, then what we're going to do is start in these first few verses and see how the author beautifully and in the best Greek of the New Testament really lays out who Jesus is and what qualifies him as God's son. So Jesus is dot, 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 God's son. And what qualifies him? First, he's a new voice. He's a new voice. You see that in the first two verses. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. So the Garden of Eden, God, God interacted with uh, Adam and Eve very regularly. But then they, they got booted. They got kicked out. And ever since then, God has been interacting with his people in many different ways and in many different times. And in each of those times, God's expectation has been for them to listen. 
If God spoke to his people on the top of Mount Sinai, his expectation was, listen. If he spoke to them from a pillar or a cloud, he would want them to listen. If he spoke to them from a burning bush, God's expectation was, listen. Now, as God's son, the expectation stays the same. The author of Hebrews reminds us, though, that uh, God often and most often communicated with his people through the voices of the prophets. Just the beginning of several of the prophetic verses in our prophetic books in our Bible. Jeremiah 1, verse 1. These are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. The Lord first gave these messages to Jeremiah. Now, Hosea. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Bari. Obadiah. This is the vision that the, son, that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. Same thing in Micah. The Lord gave this message to Micah. Zephaniah. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. In the story of the Exodus, when Aaron and Miriam complained about Moses, God began his rebuke of them like this. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions, and I would speak to them in dreams. If the author of Hebrews were here, he would say, are you, are you getting the point? God used to speak to his, to his people through the prophets. That's how it used to be, but now it's done differently. Now, God says, it's done through my son. And this is a new voice. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, says Hebrews. And the expectation is still to listen. God's expectation didn't change just when the, uh, the voice changed. Scripture tells us on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says, Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my dearly loved son. Listen to him. In Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2, Long ago God spoke many times, many ways to our ancestors, the prophets, through the prophets. And now he has spoken through the son. Listen. To him. You know, interesting little side note that I, that I found on just these first two verses. Several commentators talked about the way this, the author of Hebrews pointed back to the fathers and the prophets, and they said that uh, they were pointing back to kind of broken and sporadic revelations. Whereas with Jesus, it's a final and complete revelation. A guy by the name of Marcus Dodds, who is one of the smart guys that ends up in books, he wrote this. He says, Hebrews 1.1 points to the fragmentary character of former revelations. They were given piecemeal, bit by bit, part by part, as the people needed and were able to receive them. Their revelation of God was essentially progressive. All was not disclosed at once, because all could not be understood at once. One aspect of God's nature, one element of his purposes, reflected from conditions of their time the prophets could know, but in the nature of things it was impossible that they should know the whole. It's a bit of a mouthful. So in layman's terms, it's a lot like this. It could be said that previous revelations of God was like listening to the radio. You could hear God's voice in many different times and in many different ways. But when Jesus came, it was as if we got to hear God's voice and meet him face-to-face. Jesus, as God's Son, is a new and complete and final voice. Why should we listen to him? 
Well, the author of Hebrews essentially says, let me tell you a little bit about what's on Jesus' resume. Chapter 1, verse 2. And now in these final days, God has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. So Jesus, as God's Son, is heir of all things. God promised everything to Jesus. It's in the second psalm that the author quotes a couple of verses later where God says, Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, now, the whole earth as your possession. God says, you know, don't just ask for the, the, the people that you're going to save by your work on the cross. Ask for the entire earth because I'm going to give it to you. You're my son. Heir to everything. Not a bad line to have on a resume. Amen? Amen. Good. Let's continue back. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And now in these final days, God's spoken to us through his Son. God's promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. Jesus, as God's Son, was the conduit for creation of the universe. The whole world, universes that we know and universes that we don't know, as well as this little spinning ball that we call the earth, they all were made through Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, and the author of several other books reiterate that same point. John chapter 1, verse 3, God created everything through Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, but we know that there's only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we live for him. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything, and through whom we've been given life. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, that Jesus existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made all things that we can see and the things we cannot see. Jesus, as the Son, was the conduit of creation. Again, great line on the resume. Let's keep going. Chapter 1, verse 3. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. That's loaded. It's a loaded statement. Hear it from another translation. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Let's look at the radiance of the glory of God first. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 5, says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Now, the glory of the Lord in, in the Scripture is often depicted as a tremendous light. Listen to Exodus chapter 24, verse 15 to 17. Then Moses climbed up the mountain, and a cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. Okay, I think of cloud, I think of kind of dark and gloomy and maybe some raindrops, right? Verse 17, to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. The radiance of the glory of God, like a consuming fire. That was on Mount Sinai. 
Now when the priests took the ark into the temple that Solomon had made, and then they came back out, listen to what happened. It says uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud for the glorious presence of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. This crazy, brilliant, unbelievably bright light, the glory of the Lord made it impossible for the, king, the, the priests to continue their work. So Jesus, as God's Son, is the radiance of God's glory. When I was little, I lived in Dallas, Texas. I actually lived in one of the suburbs. And I remember several times going out at night and looking towards downtown. I couldn't see the buildings or anything because I was in the suburbs. But several times at night, I would look and I'd see those big lights, you know, that, that kind of flash back and forth. I think we got one that kind of looks like that. And oftentimes there were two or three and they were crossing back and forth. And I remember once telling me, well, James, every time you see a light like that, it means a new store has opened. I thought that was pretty cool, right? It may not have been true all the time, but what was true was that even miles and miles and miles away, I could see that light. It was huge. It was brilliant. It was radiant. And the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, as God's Son, is the radiating glory of God. This consuming fire of God. He's the outshining of what God really is. And it's great because the Greek word used here literally means a light shining or flashing forth. It's the only time this word is used in the Greek New Testament. That's pretty cool. Now the verse continues. It says, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Expresses the very character of God. Or, or he is the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word here looks like this. Yeah, okay. It's pronounced charakter. Say that with me. Character. Do you hear the English word in there? Character? Good. Good. Character. The shorter definition of this word means an exact reproduction. An exact reproduction, which is pretty cool thinking about Jesus that way. He's an exact representation, exact reproduction of God the Father. That's the shorter definition. The longer definition actually gives us a picture of how this word was used in antiquity, in the time that Jesus lived. The longer definition for this word is an impression, a representation, a graving tool. Modern-day Bishop N.T. Wright explains it best, so I'll use his words. He says, at the bottom of it all, in the ancient world, lies the idea of engraving or of stamping soft or hot metal with a pattern which will, which will then continue to bear. The, the, the other metal will continue to bear it. The emperor would employ an engraver who carved the royal portrait and suitable words or abbreviations on a stamp made of hard metal. Then the engraver used this stamp to make a coin, so that that coin gave the exact impression of what was on the stamp. This word, character, character in the ancient Greek, was widely used to mean just that, the accurate impression left by a stamp on a coin. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying about Jesus. It's as though the exact imprint of the Father's very nature and glory has been precisely reproduced in the soft metal of the Son's human nature. It's all there for the world to see. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, the, the stamp portrays 
the reality behind the image. By looking at Jesus, you see the Father. Now this word, again, used only once in the New Testament, is probably what Paul was at least thinking of when he wrote in Colossians that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Or maybe he was thinking of it when he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You know, perhaps even Jesus was thinking of this image when he answered um, Philip's request. Philip said in John chapter 14, Lord, show us the Father and, and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Think carefully about this Jesus. As son, Jesus is the exact impression of God's character. Back to Hebrews, still in verse 3. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Sustains everything. Upholds the universe, another translation says, by the word of his power. Paul writes in Colossians, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How's that for a line on a resume? Um, Everything. Everything. Everything is held together by me. And not just by Jesus, but by the word of his power, or the power of his word. I recognize Okay? That as uh, the position that I hold, a senior pastor of a church, sometimes, maybe, maybe often, but at least sometimes when I speak, uh, people listen. <laughs> and sometimes when I speak, uh, action even gets taken place. But I also recognize there's times that I, that I speak and it's like talking to the wind. I realize that there are times where my word does not hold power. At least the type of power that this is saying Jesus' word holds. I want to give you a little case in point, not on a church level, but on a much smaller scale. Last weekend, this is not it, but last weekend I helped my sons put together a bunk bed. I used to really enjoy working with wood. My sons at ages 10 and 7 are really, really good helpers. Really good. And I will be the first to admit to you that when I get in project mode, I'm not a great communicator. Okay, so <laughs> my wife is like, uh-huh. So th- there was one point in this project that we're working together, and, and we all have our hands on different things. We're holding things. And I, I thought, at least in my head, I had asked somebody to hold this, this main piece of the bunk bed. Well, wouldn't you know it, out of the corner of my mind, I, the corner of my eye, I see this thing starting to tip. And it's not like it's just like one piece, okay? It's the entire base of the bunk, and it's tipping towards my head. I tell you what, whether I remember to ask my sons or not to hold that piece, there's no power in my word to, to put together a bunk. I can't even hold a bunk bed together with my word. And yet, Jesus can hold the entire universe together by the power of his word. That's what this passage says. So far, on Jesus' resume, per se, we've seen him as a new voice, an heir to everything, the conduit for the world's creation. 
He's also the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of the Father's character. And most recently, he is the sustainer, the upholder of all things by the power of his word. We're back in Hebrews 1, verse 3. So the Son radiates God's glory. He expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his hand. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down. Wait, wait, wait. When he had cleansed us from our sins... It's as if the author is saying, hey, if this other stuff doesn't matter. In case you didn't catch all this amazing, fantastic stuff that's already on Jesus' resume, he also cleansed the world from its sin problem. I had to smile when I came across that because it's, it's a huge idea. And yet in Greek, it's just three words. Granted, they're big words, but it's, it's three words. After making purification... For our sins. Jesus, as God's Son, is the purifier of our sins. Titus chapter 2, 14, it says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. This idea, this action, this purifying from sin is, uh, is something we're going to spend a lot more time uh, in as we look at this series, so I'm not going to go into too much more detail other than the fact that I just had to grin as it seemed like an afterthought that the guy, the author, was, was putting in there. You know, crazy stuff like radiating God's glory and, oh yeah, by the way, he solved the sin problem. It's probably not what he meant, but it made me smile. First, the first song that we sang this morning, was Power in the Blood, had, had a verse, uh, the third verse. The line says, there's power in the blood, come for a cleansing. To Calvary's tide, a cleansing. There's wonderful power in the blood. Jesus, as Son, brings that cleansing, brings that purifying. Now, our passage for today ends like this It says, When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. When all this had taken place, when it was all done, Jesus sat down in the place of honor. The place where every Jew and every Jewish Christian and anybody in in that culture, they knew that it was the highest of all places to sit. The right hand of the Father. Now what a tremendous bookend to an already rich resume. The gospel writer Mark knew this was a good way to end a story. The last two verses in his gospel, he says, When the Lord had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. The disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord Jesus worked through them, confirming what they had said by the many miraculous signs. When all was said and done, Jesus sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus did. Okay? Not Moses. Not Elijah, not Jeremiah, not Obadiah. Jesus did. And he did it because he was God's son. Consider Jesus. Think carefully about this Jesus. Take notice of him. You know, the first three verses in Hebrews give us enough to think about for probably years. I'm just asking you to think about it for a week. Okay? So this week... I want to ask you, which line in Jesus' resume, which attribute stuck out to you the most? Which one connected to your heart the most? Which one did you gravitate to and which one was the hardest for you to fathom? Think about those things. And then in conversation with others, 
shared them. Tell you what, this is the beginning of a pretty amazing book. And Jesus' resume kind of blows the other one we looked at out of the water. This week, think carefully about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Let's pray. Wow, God, what a way to start. We talk about this book being a hard book to understand. Uh, a book written by a scholar for scholars. And yet we can unpack those first three verses and we, we can realize that Jesus is, is pretty awesome. He's pretty amazing. And God, there is so much about him that, that gives him the right to be your son. To hold that title. Father, I want to pray that this week, as we think carefully about Jesus, as we are preparing our hearts to celebrate Palm Sunday next week, I ask that you would bring to mind the things that we have looked at. These ideas that Christ is a new voice, that, that he's an heir of all things, that he radiates your glory, and, and that he's an exact imprint. We ask that you bring to mind the idea that Jesus did cleanse us from sin. And he's sitting there at God's right hand in the place of honor. Help us to know what that means for us. It means for us as we worship this Jesus and as we try to become more and more like this Jesus. I thank you for the beginning of a series. And I pray, Father, that we would become more and more like your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good Sunday. Amen. Amen. And look at that. We got plenty of time to, uh, to eat. Yeah? 11 o'clock, we'll have uh, formation hour upstairs. And 11 o'clock, we will meet in here with the children's workers. Go get your kids. Bring them in. We're going to keep it short, lively, and fun. Uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Now, for those who have been in the church for a long time, I want you to think about your favorite Palm Sunday song and know that we're probably going to sing it. Because what we did, we opened up the hymnals and we said, Ooh, what's going to bring us before the throne as we walk up that road towards Jerusalem with Jesus? I'm excited about it. I'm excited as Easter comes close to us. This week, think deeply about a Jesus and may Jesus bless you and protect you. May he smile upon you and be gracious to you. May he show you his favor and give you his peace because he's Jesus. Amen, amen. and amen.